And our text for this morning is Matthew 22, 34 through 46. And this is God's word for us this morning. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you for your holy word. Thank you for your goodness and your grace. Thank you for giving us your commands. And we would ask you today, Lord God, to work in us, in the familiar and in the unfamiliar. Teach us and grow us. God, let this day not be a day where we say, oh, I know that, oh, I know that, oh, I know that. Let this be a day where we encounter you by your Holy Spirit and we are transformed. Be gracious to us, God. Be merciful to us. We are weak sinners. We have no good to plead other than the good given us by Jesus. So it's in his holy name we ask for your mercies. Amen. You can be seated. You know, last week we watched as the Jewish religious leaders came to Jesus and asked him trick questions, two of them. They wanted to trap Jesus by forcing him to answer questions that would cost him followers, get him into trouble with the government. But in each of those two instances, Jesus answered with a glorious and godly wisdom that silenced all of his adversaries. Well, in our passage for today, we get the third trick question aimed at Jesus. And then we get to watch Jesus turn the tables and ask a question of his own. Now, if you're a note taker, we'll just jump right in pretty quickly here. Make room for three main points. And we're going to look today at the great commandment and watch Jesus follow up with a great question. So, you ready? Real quick, right? Point number one. Love God with everything you've got. Point number one, love God with everything you've got. Verses 34 through 36 read, When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great command in the law? Or commandment in the law, sorry about that. So, Earlier in this chapter, the Pharisees had sent a disciple of theirs to have a go at Jesus in verses 15 to 22. That was the trick question, you remember, about taxes and do we pay Caesar or not. 
And of course, Jesus handled that question perfectly. Then the Sadducees took their shot. That was the question about the resurrection and marriage. And Jesus handled that. Now the Pharisees are going to ready themselves for one more run at the Savior. The Pharisees send a man who is here called a lawyer. And now don't think here of a lawyer in our modern context. This guy was not offering you a phone number to call if you've been in an accident. <laughs> think about a man who was an expert in the religious law. You know that the Jewish religious leaders had extracted from the books of the Old Testament a set of 613 laws? And they found in that 248 positive commands, the do this commands, and they found 365 negative commands, do not do that. So I suppose they could sell like one of those devotional calendars, each with a negative command throughout the year. And, and, and as fits what we've already seen about these groups, these guys love to debate. They love to argue. And they like to argue even about which law of all the laws is the most important law. And the trap that they set is in asking Jesus which law is most important. And they're trying to, to sort of mess with Jesus' popularity. And they were trying to cause division. The Pharisees expected that no matter what law Jesus says is number one, there's going to be a group of religious teachers who are going to be offended by it. So they can, they can divide Jesus' following. It's kind of like asking a politician, what's your favorite movie? And then use whatever answer he gives to make people who don't like that movie oppose him. <laughs> right? Or do you all remember... Those of you who are children who are like at least, you know, awake in the 90s, you remember when you found out that George Bush didn't like broccoli? And people went nuts over that, right? How could you not like broccoli? And he just didn't, you know. It's weird. Well, what you can guess here is that this lawyer comes in. Now, he seems actually more sincere than the others. When you see in Mark... This, this passage taught, it looks as though this lawyer is a little bit more sincere. Jesus never, never reproves this man for the testing question. It looks like he's been put up to it by leaders who have bad motives. Um, and if you look at how Jesus answers the question, again, if you look at it in Mark, the lawyer seems to be affected by Jesus' response. But here's what we get in Matthew 37 to 38. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. So we have no hesitation from Jesus about answering this question. He's not worried about the lawyer's question. But I do wonder if Jesus' answer to the lawyer's question surprised anybody in the crowd that day. I mean, after all, Jesus doesn't cite even one of the Ten Commandments the way you often think of them. Instead, Jesus goes to a command that any faithful Jewish father would speak in his household every morning. Jesus quotes what is known as the Shema. And the word Shema is Hebrew for hear. The verse we call the Shema begins with the word hear, hear, O Israel, right? Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9 is where you'd find this. Verse 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. 
And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. But to the lover of Old Testament law, it would be awfully hard to come up with a more important single passage of Scripture than that. God tells Israel, listen to me. God lets Israel know that he is the one true God. There's no other God like him. And then he gives the command. The command that God gives is a command that fathers are supposed to teach their children, that people are supposed to write down and keep with them. It's a command that's supposed to be over your hand and what you do, over your head and what you think. It's to be over your home and every part of aspect of your living. This is an important command. And what is the command? Love the Lord your God. What's love? We've seen in many other messages that I've taught you, love is a commitment to the good of another. To love God is to be fully committed to the Lord, to His name, to His glory. To love is to give of yourself in absolute devotion to God and God's glory. Now right here, dear friends, we start to see something important. Jesus was asked, what's the most important command in the written scripture of your day? And Jesus unhesitatingly says, love God. That is your number one priority. More than ceremonies, more than restrictions, more than anything, you are to set your number one priority to the expression and keeping of your commitment to the Lord. If we were talking about the biblical commandment to love one another, I would remind you love is not primarily an emotion. Love is first and foremost your commitment to somebody else. But as you find yourself committed to another person, affection toward them will grow. Loving God will impact how you think about God. Loving God will affect your heart toward God. Loving God will grow in your emotions as you consider God's perfections and think about His grace. But listen, loving God will begin in your life when you let go of your own rights and you let go of a focus on yourself and you first and foremost become committed to honoring the Lord. Well, in what area of your life are you supposed to love the Lord? Well, we've got a list of three things here, don't we? And I have to tell you, this list of three things in verse 37 has led to all sorts of messages and discussions. It's led to far too many three-point sermons. There have been full anthropologies, studies of the doctrine of man, that have been based on the supposed differences between heart, soul, and mind. Now, those are different words, there's no doubt. You read one commentary and it'll tell you, heart points to your very being and your soul points to the seat of your emotions and the mind points to the center of your intellect. Some of them will switch them around a little bit. See, the problem is, there's no real way for you to draw distinctions 
to know which of those three categories you're using to love the Lord your God. In truth, I don't think that the passage in Deuteronomy or this passage in Matthew or the other ones in the New Testament are in any way trying to get you to make a distinction or a distinguishment between the areas listed. Neither do I think Jesus is trying to show us that a human being is made up of these three basic parts. The, some people actually try to argue that, that the human being is a trichotomy, that you have your spirit, your soul, your intellect. Or sometimes people will say, well, you have your physical life, your spiritual life, and your mental life. You, you'll, you'll see people try to break the, the body down like that. The Bible just never gives us a picture of, of humanity, of, of the human being made up of three parts. The Bible tells you that you are the inner man and the outer man. What Jesus is doing here, though, what the Lord was doing in Deuteronomy, is using the very common Hebrew practice of repetition for emphasis. Can you think about times in the Bible that you've seen God repeat something so you get it? How many of you read the Psalms like every day? In so many Psalms, how many times do you read one line and realize that the next line says almost the same thing as the, re the previous line? That's repetition for emphasis. We want to show you this is important, a strong truth, a big deal. In Isaiah chapter 6, we're in Revelation chapter 4, there are angelic beings around the throne of God. And you remember what they say? Holy, holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. And that's what they're doing. They're making a, an, a deep, emphatic point of the holiness of God. Jesus is not telling us to spend time thinking about, oh goodness, am I loving God with my heart now or my soul? With my soul now or with my mind? Ooh, what if I was aiming for soul and got mind instead? What do I do? What Jesus is doing here is speaking like Hebrew scripture. He's using repetition and he's telling you and he's telling me that we are supposed to love the Lord our God with everything we've got. Heart, soul, mind, they tie together to make you understand that there is no part of your being, no matter how much you think about your body or your soul, there's no part of your being that is not to be first and foremost committed to the Lord. Whether it's your brain or your feelings, you are to give all of your all to the God you serve. That's the highest commandment God has in the scriptures. Now, I do want to take note of the difference in language here. Matthew does not record the word might or strength here in a category for you to love God. It's in Deuteronomy. It's in Mark. Why does Matthew not have? You know, I can only hazard a guess, but smarter people than me can probably give you good linguistic reasons why. So don't make a whole lot of this, but maybe. I wonder if Matthew didn't record the word strength here or might here because he wanted to prevent the word from being misused by his Jewish audience. Remember what disappointed the Jews most about Jesus? He did not come as a conquering military hero like they wanted him to be. Maybe not using the word might here is Matthew being sure that nobody can use 
the word might, a group of zealots can't use the word might as an excuse to foment some sort of military rebellion and say, see, we're loving God with our strength. I don't know. But Matthew doesn't include it. But here's the thing, guys. Whether the word might or strength is used here, or whether the word mind is used here, it changes nothing because Matthew and Mark and Moses and Deuteronomy, they're telling you this. Love the Lord your God with every part of you, with all you've got in every area of life, bar none. So stop and ask yourself, Christian, are you loving God with all you've got? Are you right now giving God permission to rule in every aspect of your life? I don't like the word permission there, but you get the point, don't you? Are you telling God, all of me, every part of me, every corner of my life is yours? Or is there some area of your life where you're still holding on to it like it's your own? You're loving God with your prayers and with your Bible study, but maybe not in how you entertain yourself? Are you loving God at your job, but maybe not once you get home? Are you willing to love God by avoiding really dangerous things like illegal drugs, but maybe not in avoiding some of the choices you make when you eat? Are you loving God by, by coming to church, but not by obeying the commands of God when you're outside of this room or away from the gathered people of God? Why not take a second, maybe you can write it down on your notes or just think about it. What is a corner of your life where you currently are battling against loving the Lord your God in that area. Remember, Jesus said the one who loves him is going to be the one who obeys his commands in John 15. Sorry, John 14. Ask, ask God to show you. God, where is it in my life that I'm holding back from loving you with everything I've got? Ask God, repent, Plead with God to take that part of your life too. And know from this moment forward to obey the number one command of God is to say that he gets all of you, every little last bit. Second point for this morning. First was love God with everything you've got. Second point, love others like you love yourself. Love others like you love yourself. 39 and 40, Jesus said, A second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. See, before anybody in the crowd even gets to jump on Jesus' choice of the Shema as the number one most important commandment, Jesus goes even further to say that there's a second command that's a lot like the first. It's very similar in its importance. It's very similar in its call. And he says, you are also supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. 
And there Jesus is quoting a phrase that repeats in the book of Leviticus. We see it in Leviticus 19.18, which Jan read for us earlier this morning. And in case you're wondering, you know, maybe you're looking for a way out, the word for love here is very similar to the word that's in love God. It's a form of the word agape. It's the same sort of selfless, committed love. Now you're supposed to take that, you're also to aim that kind of selfless love toward others around you because you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. And what this means, again, is not complicated. I am to live committed to doing the other people around me good, real, genuine good, good according to the way God defines good. I am to do others good even when doing them good is costly to me. I'm supposed to care. I'm supposed to sacrifice for other people as Jesus sacrificed for me. Now, there's one thing here in our modern era that makes this verse sound strange. We live in a world with a huge modern psychological focus on self-esteem. And it might cause you to wonder about Jesus saying, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Maybe that's a command that God's telling me I need to have a strong self-esteem. I've heard that preached. Or maybe, maybe it's just me being commanded to love other people when I feel good about myself. I mean, after all, if I don't love myself very much, I don't have to love my neighbor that much. You can see the flaws there, can't you? The modern obsession with your view of yourself is not the focus here. When it comes to how we see ourselves, now I'll tell you, the Bible does not promote self-hatred. The Bible doesn't promote self-destruction or self-destructive behavior. But neither does the Bible promote a psychological focus on just feeling good about yourself no matter what. Instead, you know what the Bible's about? The Bible's about truth. And so the Bible tells you that you have worth. Isn't that good news that the Bible does tell you that you have value? If you ever look at yourself and say, I have no value, then you are denying the word of God. But the worth that you have is not bound up in your skills. It's not bound up in your strengths. It's not bound up in your performance, your goodness, or your badness, your accomplishments, your status. Your value is fully bound up in the fact that you are created in the image of God and that if you have come to God for forgiveness in Christ, you are deeply beloved by God. Your worth is in what God says about you. And if you are someone who is in Christ, God calls you child. God calls you forgiven. God calls you beloved. If you're a Christian, the Father loves you as he loves his Son because Colossians tells you that your life, your very life, is hidden with Christ in God. So in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul talks about husbands and wives, right? And Paul says, husbands are supposed to care for their wives. You know, you take care of yourself. He says, nobody hates their own body, but they care for their own body. And he says, hey, you know, husbands, love your wives like that. But right here, Jesus is pointing out something similar to what Paul was using in Ephesians 5. 
All human beings in a generally true concept work to do themselves good and to meet their own needs. Isn't that true? How many of you in the last day have eaten food? Yes? Why do you do that? It's yummy. And you did that because you were caring for your body. You were meeting your needs, right? How many of you slept last night? Yeah, Maybe not as long as you wish. Maybe some of you love that extra hour. By the way, I intend to take that extra hour during the sermon here this morning. I figured I didn't sleep extra. I'm just going to take it now. So this may be longer than you thought. I'm not going to do that to you. We, we do things to meet our own needs, right? I'm assuming that you all are dressed. You're, I don't, thank you. I, I, why do you do that? Again, you're meeting your needs. You're caring for your body, right? What the Savior is telling us is that we're supposed to apply our tendency towards self-preservation and we're supposed to let that go forward as you and I care for the good of others too. So the test for us here is one of how well we'll give of ourselves for the genuine good of others. Do you love other people around you enough for you to sacrifice your comfort for their good? Do you love other people around here well enough to value their opinions and their desires as much as you value your own desires? Will you love other people enough sometimes to confront them and call them to repentance? Will you do that even when the confrontation is going to be uncomfortable? Will you love other people enough to confront them with the gracious attitude that you wish other people would confront you with when they confront you? I want you, I want you to be nice to me even when you tell me the truth. Are you willing to do that for others? Jesus tells us this. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. Love God with everything you've got. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is what God wants of everyone who obeys him. And this is brilliant of Jesus. Isn't this a great answer to the question of what's the greatest commandment? I mean, Jesus has just quoted two verses from the Old Testament and they summarize all the law of God. I mean, the Ten Commandments can very easily be divided into love God, love others, can't they? If you love God, you're not going to worship false gods. You're not going to make idols. You're not going to forego Sabbath rest. And you're not going to use the name of the Lord in vain. And if you love other people, you're not going to dishonor your parents. You're not going to kill. You're not going to commit adultery. You're not going to steal. You're not going to bear false witness. And you're not going to covet. There is no command that the religious leaders could have pointed to to say, this is more important. We're going to come back at Jesus with, with our answer to what's most important. There's no commandment they could point to that Jesus wouldn't say, well, that's part of loving God, loving neighbor, isn't it? So again, though, how are you doing? Do you love God? Are you loving neighbor? Ask God. God, convict me here. Ask God. 
Show me, please, Lord, how to love you. And show me how to love others better. And in doing so, you're going to be obeying his most important commands. But do realize we only love others when we let the word and the ways of God define that love. We're not supposed to, we're not bound to love others the way the world defines love. Isn't that nice news, by the way, that you don't have to be just like the rest of the world when you love? I don't love a person by allowing them to sin against God and assume, oh, that's great, I approve. I don't love someone if I pretend that God's standards for Sexuality or marriage or other forms of morality don't apply to them. Don't you worry, you're fine. I don't love you if I do that. I don't love somebody well if I let them redefine the true meaning of Scripture to whatever suits them. I love them best when I let God, when I love God, when I love God's Word first. I love you best if I love God's Word first. So Jesus here does a great job. The third trick question apparently doesn't make Jesus stumble one little bit. And now Jesus has a question, and he's going to put this little parade of trick questions to an end. So let's get point number three. We'll wrap up here. Love Jesus, son of David, son of God. Love Jesus, son of David, son of God. 41 and 42, now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. Back in chapter 21, 25 to 27, if you're keeping score, Jesus asked the religious leaders a question that proved how dishonest they were. Then Jesus gave three parables that showed their unfaithfulness and the unfaithfulness of the nation. And now Jesus has answered three trick questions that show that he knows the word of God better than the teachers do. And here Jesus poses a question that's going to leave them speechless. Jesus sets up the question he intends to ask by asking the religious leaders a softball question. I mean, this is super easy. Whose son is the Christ? Well, all the Jewish leaders know that the Christ the Jewish Messiah, the chosen one, the promised one, he is prophesied to be the son of the descendant of King David. Where could you get that from the Old Testament? 2 Samuel 7, 16, Psalm 89, verses 2 and 3, Psalm 132, verses 10 and 11, Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, many other places point to the fact that the Messiah is going to reign on David's throne. He's going to be son of David. So likely, you know, everybody would have known the answer to this question immediately. What's funny is this conversation has probably taken place, I don't know, what would we say, maybe Tuesday afternoon of Passion Week. On Sunday, two days earlier, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, remember what the crowds welcomed Jesus with? Hosanna to the son of David. Chapter 21, verse 9. So in the minds of the Jewish leaders, 
everybody knows that God has promised that a king is coming from the line of David. They expect the king to come. Now, the Jews expected the king to come and restore Israel to freedom, to make them the most prominent nation on earth. So, I mean, but, but they know he's the son of David. So that's very good that they've got the answer to this question. Christ will be the son of David. But we're about to find out that they only understand a tiny part of the promise. Verse 43 to the end of the chapter, he said to them, How is it then that David in the spirit calls him, the Christ, Lord, saying the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. So now the Jews, they've expressed the fact that the Christ is the son of David. We all know it. Jesus asks a related question that shows that they don't still understand who the Christ is. Jesus cites Psalm 110, verse 1. David is speaking. David is inspired by the Spirit of God. And David tells us, the Lord, in the Old Testament there, Yahweh, said to David's Lord, his ultimate king or his master, he's supposed to do something. And the point of the question is in the fact that David calls the coming Messiah, the coming Christ, David's Lord. David says that the king to come outranks David himself. And Jesus asked the Jews, how in the world is that possible, guys? See, to the Jewish mind, there is no way that the coming one could both be the descendant of David and the Lord over David. Because in their system, every father outranks his son. But there's got to be something significant about the one to come, the son of David, that makes him special, that makes him unique, that makes him somehow greater than David. And so Jesus asks, if then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And this question stumps the panel. The Jewish religious leaders, the experts in the law of God, they've got no idea what to do with that question. And, 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 and at that point forward, they're like, okay, we're going to stop asking Jesus questions because every time we ask, he makes us look dumb. They're going to continue to hate Jesus. They're going to continue to plot to kill Jesus, but they will no longer even pretend that they can somehow know the word of God as well as Jesus. But what's the answer to Jesus' question? How can the Messiah be son of David and greater than David? Can I get you to turn to Matthew chapter 1? Matthew 1's a good place to be, right? You know we're only like a month away from the Christmas season, right? I still refuse to let myself listen to Christmas music till after Thanksgiving. Just, Amen. just a rule. Amen. Amen. Lame. <laughs> oh, I've got issues. I do. But let's see what we can learn in the super familiar passage of Matthew 1. It's Christmassy. Matthew 1 1 begins the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, Matthew began his gospel, if you recall, with a genealogy. 
Matthew spends the first 17 verses of this book showing us that Jesus Christ has a legitimate, legal, genealogical claim both to King David and Father Abraham. So Jesus has the proper human pedigree to be the Messiah. And that was the part of the Messiah's story that the Jews understood. They knew God had promised that Abraham and his family were special, and they knew that a special king was going to come from Abraham and his family, directly descended from King David, and they knew that the king to come was going to rule. They knew all that. Unfortunately for the Jewish religious leaders, they wrongly assumed that this meant that God was going to send a conquering military hero to free them from Rome and make them, as a nation state, the most important country in the world. They expected a man like David with wisdom, with might, to be, David's going to come, a second David's going to come, and he's going to make us rule the world. My favorite Christmas music is the album Behold the Lamb of God by Andrew Peterson. Just beautiful. And he expresses what the Jews expected like this in the song So Long Moses. He asks, will he be a king on a throne full of power with a sword in his fist? Prophet, tell us, will there be another king like this? Full of wisdom, full of strength, the hearts of the people are his. Prophet, tell us, will there be another king like this? But what the people of Israel didn't understand was how the promised king from God was also to be the one descended from the woman in the Garden of Eden who would crush the head of the devil and rescue the people of God. What they didn't understand was that God had promised the coming of the divine one, the son of God himself, who would enter the world and save the people of God from their sins. So look down to verse 17. Or verse 18. Verses 1 through 17 show us that the Messiah is descended from David and Abraham to be the promised king of Israel. But then in the very same chapter, 18 to 25, tells us of the glorious virgin birth of Jesus. Just look at this in Matthew 1, 18 and following. It says, Now the birth of Jesus, uh, the birth of Jesus Christ, took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord, from the Lord <clears throat> of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, "Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife." For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel Told, commanded him, he took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. What the Jews didn't understand is that the Messiah, the Christ, is not only son of David, he's also son of God. He's son of God and son of man. He's king of Israel and Emmanuel, God with us. 
Yeah, the Messiah, the Christ, is the descendant of David who has the right to the throne of Israel. But even greater, the Messiah is the Son of God, God in the flesh, and therefore utterly superior to David in every way. He is the Lord over David, even as he is David's son. So what's our call, friends? Love Jesus, son of David and son of God. Yeah, you should marvel that Jesus is brilliant enough to silence the critics who thought they could silence him. But even more importantly, even more importantly, love Jesus with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength and with all you've got. Because to love Jesus is to love God. So how do you love Jesus? Well, first, come to Jesus for salvation. Believe in Jesus as God in the flesh who came to pay the price for your sins. Believe that Jesus died and rose from the grave and repent, bowing to Jesus as your king and your master forever. Give yourself to Jesus as his servant. Believe in him, ask for his forgiveness, and be saved. That is the first way for you to love Jesus. And then love Jesus by doing what he says. Love him with your heart, with your soul, with your mind. Love him by obeying his commands. Love him with everything you've got, every corner of your life. Love him by loving others. Love him by loving the people around you who are created in the image of God. Love him by treating other human beings with the respect due to people who bear the image of God. And love Jesus by knowing he is, yes, son of David, but he is son of God. He is Lord and he is king, and he is God, and he is man, and he is our only hope of eternal life. And give everything that you are to the one who gave himself to pay for your sins and who is rightfully your Lord and your God. Let's bow together and let's pray. Lord Jesus, I say thank you. Son of God, Son of man, King of kings and Lord of lords. You're the Holy One. We give you praise. Lord, this text today is so super familiar. But don't let us make it something we don't pay attention to. God, help us love you the way you require. Help us honor you. Help us marvel at your grace. Help us to be satisfied in your mercies. God, work in us. I know this, Lord. I know I need to love you with all of myself. And I don't always do that from day to day. I don't even always do that from moment to moment. So God, would you take my heart and make it yours completely? Take every corner of my life and shake it out and clean it and help it love you better and make me love others and be committed to their good and make me love Jesus. God, be glorified and work in us. 
I thank you, Lord, so much, so much that you would send Son of David, Son of God, not only just to be human, to be on earth, but to be the one who died to pay for our sins. Help us respond rightly. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.